Hey guys, welcome to Hope It Helps. Today's guest is Amal Ghandour. Amal is an author whose career spans more than three decades in the field of research, communication, and community development. She is a senior strategy advisor to Rawad Al Tanmiya, a regional community development initiative, a position she has held since 2009. She has also been an advisor to Columbia University's Global Centers for the Middle East. She sits on the Women Creating Change Leadership Council of Columbia University's Center for the Study of Social Difference and more. In her upcoming memoir, This Arab Life, A Generation's Journey into Silence, Amal reflects on her life as a privileged member of the silent Arab generation that came of political age in the 1980s, seeking clarity from a twin excavation of the self and the world that gave shape to it. During this episode, we discuss the common stereotypes surrounding Arab women, we talk about the importance of native Arab voices in narratives about the Arab world, how our experiences shape our perspective, and her inspiration for her new book, This Arab Life. And the last message she wanted to share is be aware of yourself, of the moment, as there lies the keys to vulnerability. Please welcome to the show, Ms. Amal Ghandour. Thank you. Thank you, Khalid. Very, very good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. So, Amal, I took a look at, you know, some of uh, the work you've done, and I know you have a new book coming out called This Arab Life, uh, A Generation's Journey into Silence. And the title actually really caught my eye, and I thought that's, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into, you know, where did that come from? How did it come up? But I also know that you have over three decades of experience, you know, working in research and communication and community and development as well. And you sit on the board for um, the Women Creating Change Leadership up leadership, sorry, at Columbia University. So you've had a lot of experience in a field and in an area that probably I'm not very familiar with or not maybe uh, well informed about. So I'd love to, you know, dive into a couple of different topics, uh, looking at the book as well and a few other things. But before we get into everything, Amel, why don't you give all of us a little bit of background about yourself and we'll take it from there. Sure. Let me see if I can do a halfway decent uh, job of, of, of introducing myself. So I am, uh, <laughs> I am Lebanese born, uh, mm-hmm. but I grew up in, uh, in Jordan, um, at the age of, uh, 15, I left for the United States and did my last two years of high school there. Um, and uh, then went on to do my bachelor's at Georgetown university's foreign service school, took three years off and worked in different, um, uh, professions in order for me to have a better idea as to uh, what I might do with my uh, future. Then went and did my master's at uh, Stanford University and got um, a master's degree in international policy uh, with the focus on uh, the problem of underdevelopment. Um, and then uh, I basically decided that uh, I am going to embark on a corporate career. And that's what I did for the next 20 years. And what okay. I did is um, uh, begin to develop expertise in the uh, what research was, of course, my thing in, at university. But I did that and communication. And in 1991, when, uh, when, uh, when Lebanon presumably had gone into uh, or had... Um, uh, basically uh, uh, concluded its 15-year uh, civil war, and I say presumably because it really never did, but that's something you know entirely different uh, um, that we can talk about perhaps later. Uh, so I, at at the at the onset of, if you like, of peace, I decided 
why not come to Lebanon? I've, I've been Lebanese. I used to come occasionally to see, you know, extended family. Uh, we lived actually in, in Lebanon um, two different years in 1967 uh, during the 67 civil war, my, uh, sorry, uh, Arab-Israeli war, and my father moved us uh, to Lebanon and then in the 1970 civil war in Jordan. So other than that, I really didn't know Lebanon. I thought, well, here's a, an opportunity for me to come back or come uh, to my birthplace and see how a country um war-torn country might reconstitute itself. And then I became, a, if you like, a veritable Beiruti, and I've been here uh, ever since. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I've been uh, in communication and research for the, for the better part of the last uh, 30 years. Uh, in 2002, I decided that I really would like to focus much more on my writing. It was always a lifelong passion. I had not pursued it earlier. Maybe that's a mistake and maybe not. You know, Marguerite Ursinar once said that um, a writer should never attempt writing a book before the age of 40. So uh, without even knowing it, I followed her advice. Um, and I, I thought that it was time that I could afford, you know, after 20, 25 years in the corporate world, I could afford to uh, shift my focus and give attention uh, to... Uh, 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 areas that I was really passionate about, and uh, and I decided to focus more on writing. At that time, it happened uh, that that a very good friend of mine, Ali Jabri, uh, was murdered in in Jordan. And uh, Ali Jabri was always one of um, well, first of all, he was a brilliant artist, um, and I. Uh, uh, a, a, an artist with an extraordinary ability uh, uh, for um, uh, uh, social commentary through his diaries and through his paintings. Uh, he harked from uh, a, a lepine aristocracy. Uh, so I, I thought he lent himself very nicely to a, an historical narrative about the modern uh, Near East through his work and through his life. And I produced my first book this uh, about this man called Ali, uh, which came out in 2009. Uh, I had established also a blog called Thinking Fits that ran for till 2016. And then I decided to go silent uh, for many reasons, some of them quite obvious. There was just too much noise. Um, and I decided that I needed to withdraw and detach myself and just... Uh, and that was, you know, around the same time. There was also a tragedy in, in our family in the year 2011. It was a very painful time uh, for me and for us. So I thought it was uh, really uh, perhaps wise for me to just establish a bit of distance between me and the outside world, and that's what I did. And that's the time when I really began to think if, if in fact, there isn't a second book in me, a story that needed to be told and and uh, and you know, around 2018 or so, I began to think very seriously about this. And then here we are with uh, with uh, this Arab life. So I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if that makes a long story short. It didn't feel short to me, but, but there you go. That's, that's me and I. No, sure. No, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for sharing, you know, your story and a bit of your background. I think it's always good for the audience to understand you know, get some a better idea of who I'm speaking to and, you know, their story and why we are here today. Mm -hmm. um, so, Emma, like I said earlier, we're going to be touching on um, a couple of different topics that I haven't actually 
spoken about um, previously on the podcast. So I'm really excited about that. I like I like new concepts. I like new challenges and new topics that I'm nowhere near, not even a little bit of an expert or don't really know too much. Um, so I wanted to start here. So I wanted to start, first of all, you talk about, you know, one of the things that's important to you is countering the stereotypes surrounding, you know, Arab women. Um, and I'd love to hear from you, what are the common stereotypes? And I guess kind of elaborate, what is the issue? What is the issue with them? Right. Well, I mean, like every story, uh, like every controversial issue, uh, in point of fact, you have, uh, unfortunately, uh, the discourse tends to gloss over the nuances. Uh, so when we're talking about uh, stereotypes okay. about Arab women in the West, it's one thing. People assume it's only Western stereotypes of Arab women. But in point of fact, there are plenty of stereotypes in the Arab world about Arab women, right? I mean, these things true, tend true. to yeah. travel. They tend to, uh, they tend to transcend uh, boundaries and cultures and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, ideologies, in fact. So it really very much depends. I've always been interested in countering let me put it to you this way. I've always been uh, keen on countering stereotypes of Arab women, but I, to a great degree, I don't wake up in the morning saying, today I'm going to counter stereotypes about Arab women. I think through the lived experience itself and through your work, you find that you are constantly countering these uh, stereotypes, whether they are about Arab women, whether they are about the Arab uh, Arabs uh, per se, uh, or yep. any other uh, category of people, uh, uh, we in humanity tend to like to pigeonhole, and we like to pigeonhole because it make, makes a very complicated, very complicated narratives and realities much simpler uh, to us. Uh, and and when you when you are when I'm doing my work through the blog or through my research or through the articles that I. Uh, write certainly the books that I write. I don't wake up and say, here's what I'm going to do. When I'm tackling issues about Arab women, inevitably what I'm doing is countering these uh, these stereotypes. When it comes to Western stereotypes about Arab women, it's, an, it's a whole set by itself. Uh, when I am, uh, for example, talking uh, about uh, Arab women, and we're, we, you know, let's discuss something very specific, for example, and it just so happens uh, that that this is very much in the news today. The veil, the headscarf, um, a a uh, a symbol, if you like, a piece of cloth that has extraordinary power and extraordinary symbolism and extraordinary pull for those who hate it and for those who love it. Uh, and uh, I am finding myself. Almost always, in fact, I find myself almost always over the past 20 years starting with the veil, uh, because typically uh, this is where this is this is the symbol that people latch onto when they want to comment on uh, mm. on uh, on a particular um, cultural uh, theme, if you like, in the Arab world. And I'm not only talking about Islamic themes uh, per se. Um, so that's, uh, uh, you know, when, when uh, for example, uh, Western publications, whatever, approach me to write uh, an article, and they did, for example, for E.ON quite a few years back, the first thing that they wanted to do is 
to to uh, approach the topic of Arab women through, for example, uh, the issue of the veil, uh, and the pieces speak uh, for themselves. There's there's a there's an extraordinary richness to the life of Arab women, those who are veiled and those who are not veiled. And there's a plenty of us on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and I think what is lost in the argument and what is lost in the discourse is that the veil communicates something much larger than a religious uh, trajectory. Uh, it speaks to disquiets and pain and, um, uh, and uh, 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 cultural frictions, if you like, in our societies that are often ignored when we're talking about the veil. So, um, you know, whenever I'm writing, I'm, I'm inevitably disentangling these issues. I'm introducing them to the text. I'm addressing them with a lot mm. of uh, sensitivity in the hope that uh, by the end of the article, people understand that, um, uh, that if that, that, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to stereotyping, um, one needs to be really extremely careful because you end up denying humanity much of the, uh, much of the uh, color, if you like, and verve uh, uh, that we have. Mm. So there you go. Yeah, um, I think you said something very interesting that I think sometimes gets uh, lost in the translation or gets lost in our perspectives is that there the that stereotypes are not just from not just abroad, but they're also within our own culture. And there's a like you and I, I love the way you said that say like right stereotyping, you're taking a very complex issue and you're creating a narrative that might be simpler. But number one, you don't get the full story and the label that comes with that and the picture that you're painting with that could be quite harmful, um, you know, very. to very. Yeah. Uh, and I and you mentioned actually that it's funny that now that we're sitting here talking today and like you said, what we're talking about right now when uh, using the veil as an example is um, very much in the news with everything that's happening, you know, in Iran with Mahsa, what happened with Mahsa Amini. Um, and uh, you, I saw you you mentioned once that ha that the veil has been weaponized by both the East and the West. And I, I think the key word there was weaponized because, like you said, it's it's a an actual fact what is it it's a piece of cloth right but for if we're using the example that's happening now it wasn't even about like wearing it or not wearing it is that oh no it had to be worn in a very specific way right which i but think hijab is versus ab absolutely uh, which is <laughs> which is yeah. in my mind per i think that's absolutely crazy um yeah. and i'm i'm it's interesting that even till today, in such a, a um, I guess, a very open and interconnected world where people have, in most places, people have access to a lot of different information. So you get exposed to different perspectives, different ideologies that still, when it, when you bring it back home, you're still kind of, uh, what's the word? You're still kind of stuck in maybe the past times in a more um, extremist uh, time, which I I believe, at least my, my perspective, just as an Arab man who's grown up, you know, in this part of the world and so on. I think um, it's interesting how as forward we've, as the world has moved forward, we still are 
in, uh, in a, maybe a legacy mindset or legacy thinking when it comes to certain types of issues. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I mean, I, it depends on when, when you are saying we, uh, uh, you know, we, we need to be very careful that we're not uh, 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 doing so with a, with a, a, um, uh, with a, a sweeping uh, brush, if you like. Uh, sure, so sure, of course, we, of course. There are certain sections of society that very much like to be um, uh, 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 entrenched in a particular uh, position. Mm. There are other uh, parts that uh, find themselves really uh, evolving uh, uh, with uh, with uh, with the times, uh, if you like. So it depends. I think, I think if we are, if, for example, talking about the veil, I think the woman. Uh, since the, uh, I mean, the story of the veil over the past 60, 70 years, 70 years is really quite a fascinating one. People don't pay attention to context. Okay. They don't pay attention to context. How, uh, um, for the, for example, the first generation of uh, of uh, Arab feminists, uh, for example, in uh, 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 leading countries like Egypt. Uh, the first act of of uh, the affirmation of that feminism was, in fact, to take off the veil, right? Uh, and extraordinarily, okay. 20 years later, um, uh, and you continued with that kind of, you know, Arab feminist uh, 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 trend over the 50s and the 60s, and a, a growing sense of confidence on the part of Arab women uh, that they are achieving a confident uh, uh, or a, 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 a solid, robust presence uh, for them in the public sphere, uh, exercising a certain kind of freedom in dress, in uh, professional careers, in life, in uh, a certain kind of uh, uh, liberty in how they conduct themselves in, 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 um, in uh, public. And then towards the 70s, you start noticing that there was a uh, the awkwardness, this um, the the increasingly confident presence of Arab women in many uh, conservative societies started producing a certain kind of discomfort, and you started founding mm. in, the, in the in the 70s not only because of the rise of Islamism, and we need to be careful. I mean, I think they were very successful in introducing, in in disseminating the veil, if you like, but I don't think. It is, uh, I don't think we need to give them entirely credit for this, right? Uh, I think okay. to a large extent in modern times, especially um, uh, in uh, towards the beginning of the uh, of the 70s and, and then the mid-70s, we started noticing that the veil uh, began to uh, um, become uh, uh, more visible uh, and, and gradually become really ubiquitous in many societies, many towns and cities uh, that had, in fact, um, uh, 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 put them to the side, if you like, uh, uh, previously. And the reason for this is, I think, that there was, it goes to the very issue of how comfortable society was with the presence of women at the office, on the street, mm. on the buses, in taxis, in restaurants, in other places. And women started finding out that uh, society really was not as, uh, there are many sections of society that were feeling extremely uncomfortable uh, with this and there was a bit of a backlash. Uh, and the way that the, that woman wanted to uh, continue to have a presence in, in the, uh, in the, um, uh, in, in the public sphere is uh, by them simply donning 
the veil in order for them to be able to go to university, to go to school, to get on the bus, to do whatever they want in the street in the hope that they have, they establish a certain kind of modicum of understanding with a society that is not entirely happy with the uh, with them being uh, um, very free uh, uh, out in the um, out in the world. Uh, and you've started finding also in, in many ways that the veil, uh, which to some women was imprisoning, to other women was liberating. Because with very conservative families, uh, there was an insistence that they don the veil in order for them to go out and get an education. So here you have one of the sure. most fascinating paradoxes, and I'm just mentioning one of many fascinating paradoxes about the veil, where women who didn't really necessarily want to wear it were happy to if it meant more freedom and uh, more choice for them when they when they uh, uh, walked out of the door uh, uh, to pursue a career or education, whatever it is. Mind you, I, I need to be really, if I may, just just be uh, uh, take this a little further, uh, just to, to be very careful about the nuance. There are women who wear the veil very willingly. For whatever reason, of course, right? Absolutely, absolutely. For religious reasons, for a show of modesty, right? Mm-hmm. Even an expression yeah. of what they consider rebellion against Western uh, diktats, if you like, uh, Western yeah. dress, Western cultural uh, uh, incursions or hegemony, or whatever it is, it becomes really an expression uh, of or a symbol of uh, rebellion. Right uh, yeah. against against that kind of um, uh, Western uh, uh, hegemony, if you like. Uh, but there are many women as well, and here's something that we don't pay attention to: there are many women who do not want to wear the veil, mm-hmm. but end up having to in many societies because that is the only way with which they can engage more freely with that society. So it goes to the heart of the question of freedom of choice. You go and dig a few layers deeper and it doesn't, it's not about religion anymore uh, only or about patriarchy anymore only. It goes about, it goes, it, it goes to the heart of, uh, uh, it's a combination of these if you like and it goes to the heart of the relationship between uh, women and their societies and to what degree these societies uh, are able to welcome uh, um, with, without reservations the presence of women in many of these uh, uh, arenas. Mind you, some of us, let's not kid ourselves, and I'm one of them, some of us have had absolutely no trouble whatsoever, none. Yeah, my family, of course, yeah. not with my milieu, milieu, not with my setting, not with my, and plenty of other mm-hmm. women like this. Plenty of other women who've never had to consider wearing the veil, never wore it, and there was no problem whatsoever. So there's a, again, you know, there's a richness there to the, to the discourse. There's a richness to the lived experience that we tend to forget about. But I think whenever we think, whenever we're looking at the issue of the veil, whether it's in Iran or many other areas, I think we always need to remind ourselves that it goes to the question of freedom of choice. But if these women were free to choose, would they wear the veil or not? Some would very willingly for their own reasons. Some wouldn't, but they have to. And this is where we need to be focusing 
uh, a lot of the discussion, uh, frankly, because it, uh, uh, this is this is the one aspect of the argument that tends to be, or the discourse, or the discussion, or the debate, sometimes very heated, that tends to be overlooked. There are women who do not want to wear the veil and have to wear it, uh, and and yeah. this is the question that 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 is probably one of the more interesting aspects about this discourse that tends to be overlooked in the uh, in the give and take. Mm. Um, I think, well, first of all, I I personally didn't know the the history of the veil and the transition and the different periods where things transitioned from you know how it started to the rebellious side to the rise of Islamism of Islamism and the discomfort within society and how now it became the access to engage with society and like you correctly said, um, I think. Uh, you hit the nail on the head that it boils down to a freedom of choice. You know, some wear well very willingly, and you know, for them it's cultural, it's traditional, whatever it's religious, whatever the case might be. And they love it. That's that. absolutely. And we have to. Of course, that. absolutely. These are women. Again, this is a stereotype that a lot of people here, even in the Arab world, have. Right? Uh, you're yep. walking down the street, yep. uh, and you're seeing a veiled woman, and uh, you reflexively think. Uh, you know, uh, uh, automatically you you begin to form a certain kind of impression about that woman. Plenty of women who are extraordinarily sure. well educated, uh, 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 very uh, uh, very content with wearing the veil. And in point of fact, uh, if I may just mention another angle here, content to have a very serious conversation with modernity, right, and with liberalism. You uh, yeah. when you go out, yeah, absolutely. Street, you don't see one kind of veil. You see many kinds of veil. You see many colors. You see women in very uh, uh, different kind of uh, fashion and so on and so forth. And that's really a very serious and a very uh, earnest engagement with, uh, with the outside world. And I think we have to have, if we are true to our progressive values, I consider myself a progressive woman, and if I may, I, cons I, I think that every progressive person has to respect that freedom of choice. Women have the right to veil, and women have the right not to veil. The women who have the right to veil, however, don't have a problem in this part of the world. They can go ahead and veil. Nobody's stopping them. The women who do not want to veil have a very serious problem in many areas in these societies because they don't want to veil yeah. and they are forced to by circumstance yeah. or by family or emotional pressure or the other reasons that I was talking about before. So, Sure. I think, no, but I think that's a very important point that you mentioned that um, even, like the the veil can give off a certain, you know, impression to someone like who, let's say you're walking, like the example you gave was perfect. You know, you see some, uh, a woman, she's wearing the veil. So I think sometimes you naturally think like, okay, well, you don't know the full story, first of all, but you, you know, you never, it's rare that you're going to get a chance to, to know the full story unless you really go out of the way to do that. Uh, you're going to think, oh, okay, she's wearing the veil. You know, it's traditional, it's cultural, whatever her reasons are, you've now placed her in a certain, you know, box or ideology. Right. Oh, this is, that means this is what she believes, this is what she thinks, and so on. So I totally understand that. And coming back, I think you drilled down to uh, the heart of all this, like if you peel back all the layers, it does come down to, you know, freedom of choice. There's no, there's, this conversation is not for or against, it's just talking about 
the reality and the facts that we are living in today. This is what the situation is. Um, and I wanted to transition a little bit over to um, something you mentioned uh, uh, regarding the importance of uh, native Arab voices, uh, narratives about the Arab world. And when I, when I saw that, the impression I got or where my mind went, I was like, okay, that's interesting. That means one of two things. Either Amel feels there is a lacking of that. And if so, what is the reason for that? And more importantly, why is it so important to, I guess, amplify the voice of the Arab narrative from an Arab perspective? Right. So let me uh, uh, start this uh, part of the conversation with uh, with a uh, statistic that I came across a few years ago. I don't know if it still applies or not because I haven't seen anything uh, more recent. But let's assume even if it got a bit better, it'll just give you an idea of of uh, the uh, the state of uh, of affairs of of. Um, uh, 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 Arab uh, uh, books, uh, for example, in the in in the United States. This statistic came from a professor at Georgetown. It just so happened. Two uh, percent of books that are translated uh, into English are or uh, um, uh, are published in the uh, uh, in the United States. So let me flip this. Of the books published in the United States, 2% are translated from other languages. And 2% of that 2% are translated from Arabic. Right? So that means that means that to a large extent, the, the American reader is reading um, perspectives about the Arab world and the Middle East that are actually written by um, his compatriots, uh, Americans. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You've got some excellent work done uh, by uh, Westerners on uh, on the Arab world and uh, and uh, scholarly and journalistic and um, I haven't come across novels, but uh, or non or fiction. But I mean, uh, this is not to put down this kind of. Um, literary output uh, on the Arab world. But it does present a stark picture yeah. uh, about when, uh, when, when, when an American reader is reading about the Arab world, he's reading whom, right? He's, re- he's reading for the, mm. in most cases, he's reading an American talking about the Arab world. So that presents a certain kind of perspective. And, sure. I'm, and, and it's a perspective uh, that uh, and 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 one cannot judge it. I mean, it depends on the you know you you read the book and you judge the book. It's a, it's there's there's absolutely no way that you can produce or you would even want to contemplate a judgment uh, on this output. But at the same time, there's a lived experience. There's a perspective. There's mm-hmm. a journey. Uh, there is an interaction with the Arab world that is. Specifically Arab, and when I say specifically Arab, I don't necessarily mean that it's one and the same experience. Of that course, you and I, you in Dubai, and uh, myself in Jordan or Lebanon or Damascus or Egypt have actually gone through the, you know, the same experience. So if you were to write a book, you would be basically speaking in my name and thank you very much. Not at all, but I think that there is a native, an indigenous voice here. Uh, that perhaps 
uh, has uh, a, a different kind of uh, uh, um, emotional and psychological and actual um, experience uh, with this Arab world that would complement, that would add to this body of work, that would offer a different angle, a different kind of uh, uh, lens, uh, if you like. And that just doesn't happen to be... Uh, um, there doesn't have... There, there isn't that rich of an output uh, uh, out there. I, I suspect it's gotten better over the past few years because the statistic that I shared with you is not, is not recent. I think probably it's like 10 years or something like this. We've seen more uh, Arab writers being translated into English um, and French and other languages. Uh, we certainly have our stars uh, in fiction and nonfiction. We've got... Uh, of course, uh, you know, the, the very famous ones like um, uh, uh, Najib Mahfouz and uh, Hanna Mina. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, among women, uh, you know, Hanani Sheikh. Um, and, uh, 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 of course, others. You have, of course, Ahdaf Swayf was always written in, in, in English, uh, in point of fact. Uh, but I... I I think that there's really quite a lot of talent in the Arab world that just doesn't have that kind of opportunity to find a voice uh, in the West. And I think, and and I, as a nonfiction writer, I have to tell you, as a nonfiction writer, that's always an issue uh, for me. Uh, and it's an issue for even more well-established nonfiction writers uh, who write some extraordinary work in Arabic. I, of course, I write in English. Uh, but I'm a native voice nonetheless, but there are others who write in Arabic as well and, and English and have little opportunity to put their work out there uh, in the West. Uh, and I yeah. think it's important. And I, the reason why I think it's important is because it, it just adds to the richness of the, of the discourse. It adds to the, uh, it, it, it can only, uh, it can only uh, inform uh, and, and uh, add to, the, uh, to what is already uh, out there. Why not? Absolutely. Why, like, why, yeah. why not? Indeed, um, I think you touched on something um, very important. That, um, in terms of when you're speaking about the the emotional and psychological like um, experience that you have as growing up in the Arab world, you know, as an Arab, and like you correctly said, your experience and my experience are com- going to be completely different, but. There are going to be, if I told a certain story about, you know, whether it comes to think, there's certain commonalities culturally that we can probably relate to a lot, you know, like, you know, the family events, you know, the dinners here, you know, those gatherings, it's, you know, that's something that's very common across, but it would come, like you said, like me and myself and you speaking about it compared to if someone uh, was uh, someone from the, like from Western society was writing about it. It's not that like you. It's not putting down the work they've done. Like you said, there's been some incredible work being done. You can course. put it down if it's but, bad, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's, fair. Mean, <laughs> that's as, fair. As a matter of principle, yeah. you don't put down, but you can very much put it down if it's bad. And there's plenty of bad work, by the way, coming out about us. So I mean, you know, but yeah, of absolutely. course. Um, 
but coming back to uh, I think uh, the word used the the emotional aspect that you know, no one's going to be able to tell that story better than you know ourselves and people who are Arabs and who have grown up in this part of the world and so on. Um, one thing that um, I wanted to uh, touch on a little bit regarding. Um, so I was uh, when I was doing my research, there was something. This is gonna, okay. So this is gonna open up a very different kind of topic, but it's something that this is and and this is uh, this is my current belief and this is my perspective on things. So I wanted to see what you would be, and we're not gonna get like political. I'm just talking overarching in general. That's my. Sure. This is how I'd like to approach it. So it was interesting. Um, I was reading that, you know, when you, um, after the Civil War, when you went back to Lebanon and, you know, when you had friends that actually stayed there while you went to the States and so on, uh, and when you came back that they had lived through, you know, the Civil War and you uh, you weren't there, you were studying abroad and then you came back. So they called you um, this concept of the, the, the tourist. Mm-hmm. And that label was, <laughs> that label, I sat down and I was thinking about it. Uh, and my, first of all, I get what they're talking about, fine. I, I'm not, a, uh, that's a fair perspective, no worries. But I think if Actually, you- Actually, it isn't a fair perspective, but I'll talk about that when you, when you, when you, when you, uh, ask me the question. Yeah. Sure. Um, I think that concept of, so for example, in, in that example, they're Lebanese, you're Lebanese, you know, by, by birthright and so on. Okay, they went, they experienced this a very difficult time um, and then you came back. So they, you know, maybe they went through certain things, whatever that made them feel that way and label it in that sense. But if you take that example as the tourist that I can identify someone who is, who has the same, we come from the same place, you know, um, we have the same initial, like upbringing and that va- we should have the same values, you know, on a, on the, on a macro level. I think that label as a tourist, if you apply it on a macro scale and you apply it across, you know, the Arab world, I believe like that kind of label um, shows the, um, the the division in our unity um, as Arabs. Um, so I'd love to, that's always been my perspective. Um, so I'd be uh, very curious to get what are your thoughts? Well, that's an interesting perspective. Mine is actually much, much narrower than this. And it is okay. specific, okay. specific to... Uh, specific to those to 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 those countries that have experienced um, uh, uh, bloody conflicts, uh, if you like, uh, sure. uh, or or extremely uh, difficult uh, uh, conditions. This is, and and, and I wrote actually a. a a post about it in Thinking Fits a long time ago in. Uh, because, and I called it those who leave and those who stay, right? And that's great when, top, great, and great that's title. The, uh, that's when the uh, that's when the tension begins to grow, and the people who stay, mm. the people who stay in the conflict, tend to develop a certain kind of jealousy, right? Uh, okay. Uh, about this experience, about their. Um, and tend to have a sense of ownership of that experience and of the country itself. Uh, mm. So when you have left, and by the way, I didn't leave uh, during the Civil War. I, I, my family left many, 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 many years uh, before as I did. Mm-hmm. So that was even 
perhaps an even more acute kind of dichotomy. I see. I understand. I so understand. When you okay. come back or when you come to the country and you begin, for example, commenting on it, uh, offering uh, criticisms uh, uh, about anything, anything at all, uh, the politics or the garbage or the electricity or the performance of the state or the or uh, or commentary on the society itself corruption or whatever it is there is a a, a kind of attitude on the part of many who, of who have stayed is what right do you have exactly right to come mm-hmm. and and um uh, 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 comment or criticize or whatever it is, you left or you were not here or you don't know. And it's an attitude, it's not the same kind of attitude. And I'll, and I'll share with you if, uh, some of the nuances, uh, for example. There's the attitude that I mentioned to you, which is uh, uh, who in God's name are you to criticize our sidewalks or our, uh, you know, what, 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 you know, you have absolutely no. You left. You have absolutely no right to uh, to to judge us, per se. Yeah. Right? And yeah. There's the other kind of uh, attitude. So once I was, uh, I had a little dinner party uh, at my home, and uh, you know, I'm talking about people who are really my friends. My friends are just a a, a group of very nice people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, some of them. And by the way, when I say those who left and those who stay, I have to, I have to be also. There's also a nuance here that I need to mention. There are people sure. who stayed, but mentally and emotionally left. And these people will tend uh, to be very open with you. They are as critical, mm. as angry, as furious with this country's inability to deal with its demons and with its uh, uh, weaknesses and contradictions and paradoxes and excesses, right? And there are people who have left physically, but not mentally and emotionally. What do I mean by this? I mean, they have left, they live very nice lives, they are law-abiding citizens outside. The minute they come to Lebanon, they see a red light and they... They, uh, they back. <laughs> the minute they hit the ground, as a friend of mine, as a friend of mine once said, we were talking about someone who, who, uh, who was a very successful businessman outside, uh, uh, CEO or something. I don't want to be too specific. And then comes back here two years, and he's arrested yep. for embezzlement. And so we're sitting there. Saying, okay. In God's name, happens to these people. So they leave. They lead very successful lives. They are very uh, high achievers. They do very well for themselves. They come back home and lo and behold, they, you know, they, they revert to some, some uh, 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 really quite repugnant uh, behavior. And he says, well, they come here and the first shawarma sandwich and that's it. You know, they've eaten the shawarma and <laughs> so, but of course, we don't want to make light of this. But I mean, uh, so I, I, I need to just introduce this nuance. Of course, many people who have left, but have never really left mentally and emotionally. And those people. So I'm talking about those uh, in, in this uh, this conversation of ours. I'm talking about those who really have this sense of ownership. And I I own it. I was here. I experienced it. I lived it. I suffered through it. You have no right you who left 
who led a fantastic life outside or found your, for yourself uh, salvation or success or achievement or uh, uh, well-being outside to come back here and start lecturing me. You were not here. You didn't know. You didn't go through it. So at this dinner party, I was talking about corruption in Lebanon. And corruption in Lebanon is, is, um, is a thing entirely its own. It is hideous. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is in every nook and cranny, right? Everybody is corrupt because everybody has to be corrupt. Of course, the political class and the economic class are corrupt uh, by choice and by greed and so on and so forth. But many of us find ourselves having to cut corners and indulge in one kind of petty corruption or the other to make life more bearable. And I'm including here even the poorest of the poor who have to get on with their day or, you know, and, and indulge yeah. in this kind of behavior uh, in order to just make life a little easier. So I was talking about corruption in this at this little dinner party. And then a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, and if he's going to be listening to this podcast, he's going to be pissed. But of course, I'm not going to be mentioning his name. He looks at me and this is where <laughs> the term came from, right? He looks mm. at me and he says, Amal, you talk like a tourist. And I looked at him and I said, I am, is it me who's talking like a tourist or is it you? Because I'm talking here like a Lebanese citizen because every Lebanese citizen needs to talk about this. If our, if any Lebanese who is a citizen will express themselves in exactly the way I express myself. But you, you are the tourist. You are the one who thinks that you can ignore or gloss over or pardon or excuse this kind of behavior on the part of, of uh, our elites. So that's where the name, the label tool mm. came from. And I used it um, uh, to, as, as a title to uh, one of the chapters to talk about my lived experience in Lebanon when I came back. And it's everywhere, uh, Khalid, in Lebanon. You still see it till this very day, this, this dichotomy, this yep this uh, we who stayed and you who left. And I have to tell you something, a lot of other societies, if you read uh, about conflict and civil wars and about those who left and those who stayed, you will find that there is absolutely nothing unique about the Lebanese experience. Uh, it's extraordinary the degree to which uh, my experience here and the experience of many who came to Lebanon uh, in the aftermath of the civil war really corresponds to the experience of uh, many in other areas of uh, of conflict. Um, I, I think you said something that's so interesting that I never even thought about that the when you differentiated between um, like the f physically leaving and the emotional and mental side of it, you yeah. know, and it was interesting that you could say there was those who stayed and they left mentally, you know, they checked out. You know, they, you know, didn't let that affect them in that way. And there's others that know, it, you know, really they, you know, they stayed, but it didn't, but nothing ever changed. Um, on the point, um, I wanted to ask you this because uh, I'm trying to, because uh, like on the, comp the, the story you just told me and that comment, I don't think, um, do you think that because if you've gone through that experience, you've kind of like lived it. And whatever perspective you have at the end of it, 
is it is it um how do i say this is it unf is it can our criticisms sometimes whether whether right or wrong and <clears throat> whether rightly or wrongly the difference between living through it and being away and being able to get a different you know perspective about it does that make a difference do you believe do you believe that if you've lived through something you can the i guess the the criticism and perspective you have i guess and from their from his perspective in that example he feels it's um it's justified because you know he went through it um right okay. i'm just trying to so, I'm, you know yeah. i'm just trying to i'm no, just trying to get the, yeah the, yeah that's a very interesting question so let me let me put it to you this way you know when you are and i see it today in in lebanon Sure. Remember when I came yeah. back in the 90s, I mean, I was in many ways to a certain extent, and I say this in the book, at the beginning, uh, because I knew Lebanon through my parents' memories, uh, very little memories that I had when I was a young girl uh, visiting in the summers, you know, uh, our extended family. But I knew Lebanon through books. I, I knew it through my research at university. I, I mm. knew it through my interest in mm. politics and my reading on it. I didn't know it um, in actuality, right? I didn't live it. I didn't, I, I, I was not here. So at the beginning, what I did is I just observed, right? I just sat back and observed uh, to, to try to get a sense of what this country is about, what this society is about. And, and, and just live the experience without necessarily uh, coming at it, uh, if you like, just to dance with it a little, you know, um, sure. uh, before I could uh, really, uh, um, um, uh, just, I mean, uh, uh, know myself as a Beiruti or a Lebanese or, uh, or conduct myself as such, if you like. What happens when you go through very difficult experiences, very, very difficult experiences, whether they are civil conflicts, civil wars, or uh, world wars, or um, economic, wholesale economic and political collapse of the sort that we are currently experiencing in Lebanon. Human nature, human nature tends to look for ways to survive. Right. One of the ways that you survive yep. or you think you can survive, I don't agree with that, mind you, but I certainly see it and I understand it. One of the ways that you think you can survive is by developing immunity to the excesses and abuses and injustices and pain and inequity uh, and, and uh, just jarring uh, realities around you. You begin to develop a certain kind of immunity, thick layers, thick layers all designed to insulate you to the greatest degree possible against, against uh, 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 what could be a, um, a mentally and psychologically and emotionally very uh, difficult um, way to live day in, day out. So you begin, but the problem is where you begin to develop this kind of immunity. And then you begin to think of it as a certain kind of resilience. Well, it's not resilience, really. And Lebanese tend to like to think of it as resilience, but it's not really resilience. 
it reaches a point where it becomes obliviousness. You start writing it out, right? Out of your day, out of your thoughts, out of your, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm just being resilient. I am uh, as a person going to this gala in the midst of this catastrophe in Lebanon and here I'm burning a lot of bridges. A lot of people are gonna attack me for this, but, but that's fine. I'm going to galas and parties and having a great time and dancing the night away and woohoo and you know, whatever it is, because that's resilience. No, that's not resilience. That's not resilience. Resilience is something entirely different. That's obliviousness. That's you shutting yourself out of the, out of the experience that is very specifically Lebanese for many people in Lebanon. I mean, the World Bank, uh, you know, issues these periodic reports about Lebanon, and uh, we have ourselves now 80% of the uh, population under the um, uh, under the uh, uh, poverty uh, uh, line. Uh, we have wholesale economic collapse. We have hunger in this country. We have people in Tripoli getting on boats and dying uh, every few weeks trying to escape very dire situation. So no, when you are doing this, when you're having yourself a good time in this environment, that is not resilience, really. That is obliviousness. But I've seen it as well in the civil war, uh, Khaled, because I came back in 1980, I keep saying I came back and I was never here, but so forgive me. I came to Lebanon, I came visiting in 1980 because my eldest sister, Asma, uh, has always lived here and, you know, she was married here and had kids here. So we, you know, every once in a while I would come to Lebanon during the Civil War to see her and to see family. So I came here in 1980 and stayed for a month, right? An entire month. And I would be invited to dinner parties and, and I would go and we'd be sitting on the balcony and I, and I, you know, the tourist that I am, I would start hearing mm-hmm. of, you know, gunfire, and of course, I'd be mortified and say, oh, my God, you know, we have to go home or whatever. And he'd, the people at the party would say, oh, no, for God's sake, this is just two, two streets up. So don't worry about it. We're OK. See, so that's that. I can understand why people would think of it as a certain kind of resilience. And it is in a way it is in a way a certain kind of resilience. It is in a way. And and, and you understand it, right, because you have you want to live. You want to live. You want to live your. Of course, yeah. You want to. You want to. You want to enjoy as much as as you can of uh, of an extremely uh, difficult life. But so it it presents a very difficult question. When is it resilience? And to what degree is it resilience? And to what degree you are forcing yourself out of an experience that is. Um, that that becomes although you are Lebanese and although you're living in this in this town becomes entirely the experience and the pain and the suffering of, of another country altogether. And that's where it becomes very dangerous. And in, in my book, for mm. example, I, discuss, uh, I, 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 I try to describe life in, in Lebanon here. And in, in some aspects, you have uh, the people why, uh, the, the reason why people don't understand, uh, a lot of people don't understand Lebanon, including the Lebanese themselves, is, is they they don't really quite they, they have to be very they, there has to be a leap of the imagination to a certain degree to understand how we live here and we live here in bubbles right we are a connection of bubbles in order to survive you create your own bubble 
and your own bubble becomes mm-hmm. your own country. I mean, it's really quite amazing. Uh, uh, it's a it's a surreal kind of experience, but you live in your bubble, your zone, your milieu, your setting, your set of friends, your experiences. And after a while, Khalid, if something happens outside of your bubble, if I'm sitting here in Clemenceau where I live, and a bomb goes off in Cornish al-Mazra, let's say, or a little further off. Well, that's another country for me, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I feel pain for the people. I am very upset. I am, uh, uh, it's uh, something very close to my heart, but in terms of my sense of safety and security, well, that's just another place. And if it's in Tripoli, well, that's another planet, <laughs> right? <laughs> So one needs to be you. careful yeah, to what degree, of course, one wants to survive. Of course, one wants to thrive. And, and that's the remarkable thing also about Lebanon is you have, you have little islands of excellence. If I, what I call it, if, if you will allow me, and I do this in the book, we are a nation of, uh, we, we have here individual genius and collective failure. On an individual level, extraordinary genius. The artists, the food scene, the doctors, the writers. uh, I mean, quite a lot of verve, right? But the entirety of us is a miserable failure. And so, Mm. of course, I understand. We want to survive. We want to thrive. We want to even create. And let's not kid ourselves. Creativity comes in very difficult times, right? I mean, uh, my own book, when I wrote it, was a time of very serious uh, pain. Uh, I certainly wasn't a very happy human being. But to what degree do we want to divorce ourselves or do we want to insulate ourselves from what an entire people are going through? Uh, Mm. I don't mean to judge. I do not mean to judge. I understand. But these are questions, these are difficult questions that have to... That, that present themselves and, and, and to each their own answer. I'm not even judging, but I'm giving my own perspective. I think there's a point beyond which it's not resilience anymore. It's obliviousness and it's very dangerous for a country if these people want to come together and do something about it. Wow. That was um, so many things you said. Uh, first of all, I've never, I've never, um, off the bat, I'm not, I'm not very familiar with everything that's happened. Of course, I know the, the gist. My fiance, for example, is Lebanese. So, of course, I've learned as time has gone on, I've learned a lot more. Um, but uh, the way you described it uh, from uh, on the on the concept of the Im- the immunity and resilience on the immunity part. Um, and I don't think I've ever spoken about this before, like on a podcast. So here we are. Let's go. Um for example, me, myself, I'm Palestinian, right? Now, alhamdulillah, I've had an v- amazing life. You know, I'm so grateful to, you know, my family and so on. But, you know, of course, I was raised as a Palestinian with those, with my, the, the, these values and so on. And I see everything, um, it's, you know, I see everything that's happening. Of course, this is not news. This has been going on for 70 years and so on. And I'm just, you know, kind of new into this, in, into this, you know, um, whole thing and on the immunity part um, I do resonate with that quite a lot um, because personally I just feel I feel helpless and 
when it comes to that and it's so and when you're talking about it like if i let my if i let myself like really you know feel all those different things i probably couldn't go about you know my day-to-day or you know enjoy enjoy my life or appreciate my life and so on because i would just be devastated every single day sure. so i so when you were talking about the immunity thing it really resonated with me because i've never had a word or a label for the feeling that i have or the way i've like i guess compartmentalized you know things and things in my head so i do resonate with that a lot um also interesting what you said about you know how you have to be careful that it doesn't become oblivious um and i don't know and i think we can, this can go on this this we could sit on this topic for a long time but sure. i'm going to try to round it off but i'm just trying to um but from the oblivious aspect i think there's also um a danger a danger of that and i don't know how you can be how do you maintain at least for my for me myself like how do i maintain this immunity yet not become oblivious i don't personally consider it as resilience at all myself i don't feel like i'm being resilient and i'm not even one percent if anything i'm going in the complete you know uh, other direction it doesn't make me feel resilient i'm literally i'm purely just doing this for my own you know mental you know and emotional and psychological well-being um because i left i feel if i let myself get into that it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna really help me and you know my life and so on um and also what you talked about uh talking about bubbles and bubbles within you know your own country and i think you know we as a hum- human beings we only if we we are very like our day-to-day is our mo- like the majority of our life so what's most important is what's right in front of my eyes you know here not what's five minutes to the left what's five minutes to the right what's behind me whatever so as long as everything around here in my closest closest circle that affects my life is okay you know, I can manage, you know, I can go through it despite whether it's happening, you know, next door in another country, uh, in my country, you know, um, I think that's just human, human nature. Um, And I think, and I think this kind of leads us on to um, talking about your book a bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to really dive into the the title the title really caught me off guard it was very interesting um a generation's journey into silence i'm like okay that's interesting silence um i think uh, on one side i can understand because i feel in my example that i just said about how i feel i am silent you know i don't typically talk about these things i don't like to talk about these things for my own reasons um but i think that on a you know on a on a bigger picture with for example with social media and now everyone has the ability to you know to have a voice and voice their opinion and social media has caused you know revolutions to happen for changes to happen you know for big things to happen so it was interesting the title caught me off guard because i feel like now personally in a time there's levels to it too i because i do get what you're saying you know there's levels i'm like on one side i feel that it's very loud these days because you have the potential to give that voice but I also, in my example with, uh, that I'm using myself, even with all this noise, I'm still silent in a way. Um, so I'd love to just understand yeah. how you came up with yeah. the title and what are your, yeah. you know, thoughts around that and and the, you know, share with us, sure, you know, the bookstore. Now, 
very briefly, uh, uh, I'll try to be as succinct as, as possible, but first of all, the, the, the original title was not This Arab Life. The original title was Where Was I? Uh, and then okay. uh, when uh, I finished the book and, I, and, and with the help of one of the readers, a, a, a friend and a brilliant uh, analyst himself, uh, alerted me to this, uh, uh, and I'll tell you how it happened now, what alerted me to this uh, term that I use, this Arab life in the first chapter. And the first chapter, uh, the opener, if you like, is... Um, uh, about the uh, the uh, the the moment when a personal uh, when a, a, a family tragedy took place, little just a little before um, the uh, uh, the 2011 uh, uprising. So we had uh, it was a, a unique in the sense that there was a very private pain and uh, public uh, anguish. Uh, if you like. And uh, yeah. I'll tell you what I did, yeah. uh, uh, Khaled, and that probably goes more to the heart of the kind of uh, themes that your podcast likes to focus on. So I, uh, I, uh, as I, at the beginning, it was extraordinarily active for me on social media and my blog and etc. And then by 2016, it really became just too much for me. And I thought, I'm not able to move forward to progress with writing. And I thought perhaps I might do something really counterintuitive for me. Because as, as, a, as a human being and as a woman and as, a, as just a, a person, I never really took therapy seriously, right? I always thought unless, unless there was serious, uh, serious uh, 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 you know, trauma or an event. Right. I yeah, thought, sure. uh, you know, you have existential angst, deal with it, right? I mean, don't, um, okay. But I discovered that perhaps, perhaps I need to do something really counterintuitive. And in point of fact, I went and saw a therapist in Dubai. I don't live in Dubai. Of course, I live in Beirut. I didn't feel comfortable going to therapists here. Not a commentary about them. I don't even, you know, that's not a... a <laughs> A professional uh, uh, assessment by any stretch of the imagination. I just thought I needed distance. I needed someone who really doesn't know anything yeah. about them. So I started coming yeah. to Dubai once every two weeks for like three, four days, do very intensive sessions for her with her uh, for a year. She's a brilliant uh, therapist in point of fact. So at the end of the year, I discovered that I was really attempting to excavate my life at a time when I was trying to excavate this Arab life, the larger thing, mm. the aftermath of the uprising. Mm -hmm. And I asked her yeah. this question, and this is in the book. I said, is it a coincidence that I began to dig in to my own life as I was beginning to really uh, understand much better exactly what has been transpiring in the Arab world over the past few decades she looked at me and smiled and I took that as my cue so going back to the issue of immunity and 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 and, uh, and uh, uh, resilience and so on and so forth I mean you know it's it's again when you sit for therapy uh, you discover that really what it is 
uh, is a, a pro- if if the therapist is good if the therapist is good if they're bad it's a sure. it's a it's a whole other trauma but if they're good <laughs> Uh, What it is, is a process of very delicate excavation, layer by layer, Mm -hmm. very delicate, very slow, very deliberate, Uh, because human beings to survive, to cope, day to day, they bury things. We are just very good at burying things, which is trauma, difficulty, whatever it is, difficult encounters, embarrassments, weaknesses. Uh, we call it in Arabic, of course, bahbashi. You know, you just and you just throw in. Uh, uh, and so to excavate is really exactly the opposite process. And of course, that's going to be very painful because you spend a lot of time forming all sorts of narratives about yourself and your life and your childhood and your parents and your work and your character <laughs> only for the therapist, if good, to start knocking them down one after the other. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. One time, uh, you know, we were th- she and I were talking, and and I said, you know, one of the, I think one of my real strengths as as Amal is my ability to compartmentalize. I mean, just this extraordinary way of me just compartmentalizing emotions and problems. I compartmentalize. I deal with them. I I have no, you know, uh, a burden on my shoulder. Whatever it is, I just deal with it, and I. Uh, uh, achieve closure and I move on. So she looks at me and she says, and that's in the book as well. She goes, well, yes, uh, that's because you're an emotional cripple. (laughs) (laughs) So she, uh, she, and and that was stunning for me. And of course she's right. I'm sure. She was right. Uh, Yeah. And I just looked at her and I, and I laughed and I said, well, uh, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's certainly another way of looking at it. And uh, indeed, indeed, it it uh, it uh, approached the truth uh, much more to to my own interpretation, which of course, probably without even knowing, I had taken you know twenty thirty years of of building. Um, so this book, uh, basically, uh, look, this book, uh, uh, I, I is was never really planned. I sat down. Uh, and uh, without a plan, without a without a um, uh, without a, uh, a uh, any kind of notes, uh, and and that's you know for a researcher that's uh, that's really quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, I tend to be an extremely disciplined researcher, but in this case, I decided, uh, let me see uh, what is happening here, and I just sat down and, and wrote. And of course, I'm a reader. Uh, as well. So a lot of what I was reading and what I was interacting with on the page uh, and in the media was uh, playing into the uh, into the discovery process. And at the end of it, I discovered that I think there's a story to be told here. And that's when I decided to to uh, to really uh, run with it. Uh, but I have to tell you, when I was sitting down, I, I, I was intending for it to be a book. I was not sitting down writing random thoughts. I was intending yeah. to be a book, but I didn't want to be limited or I didn't want to be guided because as a writer to begin with, I do not achieve clarity before writing. I achieve it through writing. And especially when it came uh, own okay. to my own life, 
to my own lived experience as a Levantine, uh, to my own generation, and that's the generation that came of political age in the 1980s. I, 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 uh, I could not possibly form an outline or establish the themes without allowing it to be a real stream of consciousness, a freewheeling discourse, discussion between me and myself and my world to try to understand much better this Arab life. And within this Arab mm. life, I wanted to understand, to come to grips with something that is, uh, that is more specific to our experience as the generation of the 80s. And again, when I say the 80s, I mean that came of political age that came into adulthood mm -hmm. in the 1980s, very early adulthood, late teens, early adulthood. And, and the jarring contrast at that time between the chronic instability and tumult and trouble in the region and the quietude of the spirit, the silence. Because to our older siblings, I think those who went through the, the student um, protest movements in Lebanon and Egypt and in many other countries and the sit-ins and strikes and uh, disobedience campaigns and uh, so on and so forth, uh, by the time it came to us in the 80s, that was the late 60s and 70s to up to mid-70s, by the time it came to us as the generation that was coming into uh, of political age, it was all gone. It was done. And what we experienced from that moment onward is a very troubled region, <coughs> a very, and, 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 and a people and a generation bearing witness to it in silence. So I wanted to take a look at this silence. And I wanted to disentangle the themes in history, mm. in politics, in culture, in the lived experience in contemporary times that might explain to me why we fell silent. And that's what I did in the book. And that's why I call it a journey, because it was a journey. It's definitely, it definitely sounds like a journey. Um, I love what you said about as a writer, you, you get your clarity through writing, sure. not by, you know, it's not the end product. And I thought that was really interesting. And the themes you touched on um, showing, I guess, representing that, like you said, that, that time, you know, the 80s being becoming the coming of political age and everything that has led up to it and the the contrasts between you know slight not many like s small generational differences and the experiences and how things have changed um and even forwarding to where we are today things have changed all over again and they will of continue course. to evolve and i i think okay this is interesting given where we are today Would it, would you still do you still believe that we are in we are still a part of the generation of silence or have things are we now have we moved forward have we regressed we might be descending what are your, into what are your thoughts okay interesting uh, no no yeah we we might be going into another period of those, but I think 
uh, I think what, what you are looking at, and first of all, let's, I, I, I think many of us really, especially those who consider themselves observers of the scene mm. or pundits or scholars or experts, I think we need to exercise a lot of humility, a lot of humility. And we need to humility. be very careful about the business, about the business of predicting and forecasting. The Arab world in many okay. of its parts, not in all of its parts, not in all of its parts, but in many of its parts, or let me put it to you this way, in enough parts, right? Yeah. Is going yeah. through a very, uh, very unpredictable period, right? So I think we need to ex exercise a bit of humility and understand that a lot of times instead of commenting and predicting and analyzing whatever it is, we need to sit back and observe and watch. Because mm. almost on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis, we are really being thrown, as they say, hither and thither uh, uh, between events and experiences and so on and so forth. And of course, every country has its own uh, peculiarity, of its course. own histories and, and circumstances. Absolutely. So uh, we yeah. need to be careful about that as well. Uh, so we, I, I mean, if you were to ask me really, and that's a bit of a delicate question, I think we need to be aware of this unpredictability. And I think we okay. need to be aware that we're entering into a new dynamic in many of these countries, into a new dynamic gotcha. in its early days yet. Uh, mm. In some parts, I think we might be entering into another phase of silence after a lot of boisterousness, if you like. And have in mm -hmm. other areas, I suspect, uh, let's, let's, let me uh, put it to you this way. Things are simmering, right? So okay. When they I got simmer, you. I understand. When they simmer, that means something is festering. If something is festering, yes. don't be fooled by the calm. And I think that probably says much of what, what needs to be said about it. But I'm very... I'm very, hum yeah. very humble this way. Yeah. I'm very careful about predicting because in a lot of places, we simply don't know. We can, we can draw plausible scenarios uh, and watch sure. them, of course. watch how, the re how reality plays out. Oh, but, but, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, and, and, and I understand that we want to latch on to clarity. I'm a lot of, you know, I hear at dinner parties, especially in a place like Lebanon, uh, lunches or, you know, when we're meeting with friends or whatever it is, everybody wants to achieve clarity. Everybody wants some clarity. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? How's it? Okay, you know, we're talking about collapse. Yeah, but what does it look like? But I'm like, mm -hmm. what does it look like? You're living it. So, uh, but, you know, you need to know what the next day is bringing, what the next week is bringing. But frankly, uh, you know, as I, as I said to many of them, and they're always uh, uh, clamoring for some kind of some kind of, uh, 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 you know, uh, answer, uh, satisfying answer. I'm always having to tell them I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I'm, I can, I, I, it's very difficult for me to really provide any clear sense of what is coming. I can tell you it's bad. I can tell you it's very bad. Uh, I can tell mm. you that the Lebanese experiment is at an end. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. at the Lebanese experiment as it was, uh, put together in 19, very early in 1920 when the French mandate started and then consecrated in 1943 uh, when we achieved independence and created this national pact. 
And certainly the catastrophic peace that came in the aftermath of the civil war that only entrenched our deformities and our um, contradictions and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, 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 faults, if you like. Uh, uh, you know, I can I can tell you that that is that is we are in in very serious need of a new entirely new iteration of what it means to be Lebanon and what it means to be Lebanese. But how that is going to play out, a very difficult. <laughs> very difficult. I would. It's a fool's yeah. errand. It's a fool's errand. Yeah. 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 Um, I think you made a good point, though, uh, regarding um, we all we all want clarity in our lives. You know, I've always been the type of person uh, only until not many years ago did I realize that, you know, I wish I always wanted to see life as black and white. But I've learned now with my experience and over the last few years that it's literally all only gray and very if you're lucky you'll get some black and white you know uh in some cases or not um and i think that comes and i think that comes back to um us as just people and human nature and fear of the unknown fear of we don't know what's going to happening like you said given the current situation given history whatever you know if you sit back and observe you can probably come up with a plausible you know outcome but how that's going to play out, uh, what's the repercussions going to be, when, who, where, we don't know. So I think treading, being, like you said, being humble and treading on the side of caution and just sitting back and observing. And you let, let your own thoughts, you know, you, you come to, you decide or you come to the conclusion that you believe will happen. But, you know, I think it, it makes sense to do that. Um, also, when you talked about um, a lot of, what we've talked about today, and this is something that has really stood out to me personally, is in everything we've discussed, but that we can take that and apply it, you know, to life in general, to so many different things, um, nuances. It's the, 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 or as I say, the devil is in the detail, you know, all these different little things, this small piece of information or this small perspective could change an entire my the whole way you think about a certain topic a subject a relationship whatever the case might be um my father is notorious for that um <laughs> and uh so he always you know he always tells me oh, Khaled, it's all about the details all about the yeah. detail i'm like um i don't disagree listen to your father I, uh, yeah <laughs> right yeah. I tell him I understand whether I uh, I understand it, uh, whether I agree or not. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Amel, I just have two more questions for you. Uh, these are questions I ask all my guests. So um, first of all, looking back uh, at your life, either professionally, personally, whatever it might be, if I ask you the question, what are you most proud of for yourself? What would you say? Most proud of? Uh... Uh, I have, um, you mean an achievement or in character or whatever comes to my mind or uh, whatever, come, just, whatever comes to I, I am, I have always, always uh, felt gratified by the fact that I'm honest enough with myself and with others, uh, committed enough to my value system and principles to be able to sleep very well at night. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a moment of pride, but I genuinely, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of, a lot of people tend to think of this and they describe me as such, you know, non-compromising and black and white. It's not that, 
uh, it's 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 extremely important for me to be at peace with my with my my value systems and my uh, my conscience. And yeah. uh, people tend to think of it as as a bit uh, non-compromising and uh, and hard, but uh, that it it allows me to be very much at peace with myself and and able to sleep at night and. Um, in terms of achievements, uh, I mean, look, there's not one thing that I'm most proud of per se. I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy that I turned to writing a lot more. I'm pride, proud of, of what I write. I, I, I like, uh, I like that entire experience. Uh, I like that mode of living, uh, if you like. But in terms of achievements, you know, I've, I've always tried to live as, 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 a, as an honest, decent citizen. And I, I hope I haven't disappointed anyone in that. You know, who knows? No, yeah, oh, <laughs> I guess I never know. Yeah. But you know what? Um, I, I really, I really love that answer because I think at the end of the day, you know, remove, take everything away when you go to sleep at night. It's you and yourself. <clears throat> and I think if you can go to sleep feeling that I was true to myself, I spoke what I think, you know. Um, not maybe you're saying you're non-compromising. Yeah, in certain beliefs, I will be non-compromising, and that's fine. But as long as that is, as long as I'm okay with that, honestly, that's all that really yeah. matters. If I can go, uh, if I can go to sleep at night, you know, with no regrets, I'm happy with myself and who I am. Yeah. I think that's you know, that's a huge accomplishment on its own. So I respect that a lot. Um, and for my last question, Amel, uh, what is the message you'd like everyone to take home with them today? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think probably uh, the need to always, I, I, look, I, the one thing that was really uh, rewarding for me is, um, is having, uh, is being self-conscious. Uh, you need to be self-conscious of yourself, of your experience, uh, of your work, your passions. Uh, I think um, to be uh, constantly uh, aware uh, of the moment and of your uh, life uh, in it uh, is something um, really quite quite necessary in order to have uh, I think I think I can generalize in that sense in order to have a certain kind of uh, 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 contentment, if you like, in the midst of you know a, 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 a season of discontent, especially now. Uh, this book was in many ways my 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 uh, my effort to achieve that, uh, and I think in whichever way you. Or any other person uh, can achieve that uh, through work, through art, through sports, through whatever it is. I mean, I, I have no, no, no way to to be able to, you know, uh, establish sort of like a a, a list of uh, of you know ways that you can be self-conscious. But I think living life really, being aware of the moment and of its potentials and possibilities and pain and suffering, I think is is important to be very vulnerable that way. It's good to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. 
I couldn't agree with you more um, on on the on the aspect of vulnerability. I know you know that's something that obviously took me I think time to get there. I think um, everyone has their own journey when it comes to that. Everyone has their own comfort levels with how vulnerable they they would like to be. Um, but I love what you said about you know being self conscious of yourself. You know, self aware. You are, what Probably you a better a better yeah. description is self aware. Yeah, self aware. Yeah. Self aware. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I res I res might be misunderstood what i mean more specifically is self-aware really yeah 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 no i i, and I totally understand that and i resonate you know with that a lot um i think self-awareness is something that is a, a never-ending uh, journey of you know discovery where you're self-aware out today where you're you no know, you will always have blind spots and only with time and experience in life Absolutely. will you figure those out and will that increase Amal, I wanted to say thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Honestly, this was such a different type of conversation for me. It made me, you like, I don't really speak about these things anyway, like with, in general in my life. Um, so having the opportunity to sit down and actually like have to gather my thoughts and like come up with questions and ask you and get your take and you, the things you said really opened my mind to like different aspects, different perspectives, gave me a new fresh of like a new awareness about oh this is that word that immunity word for example that's what i'm doing okay cool okay now i, I have a different relationship with it um and it sounds like so many things we talked about are involved in your book and you know the content it's i'm sure it's an excellent book i've done a quick i've done a quick skim uh, unfortunately didn't have time to read the whole thing but it's a great book um for anyone Thank who's you. interested in learning more about your story and you know the story of i think that a lot of arabs can resonate to across many 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 different issues well, I hope so, so i wanted to say thank you so much for that thank you i really thank appreciate you, it um Emil, if thank you if anyone wants to reach out with you connect with you um get you your book can you tell us can you tell us yeah, they can go to my website okay amdour.com uh a-m-a-l-g-h-a-n-d-o-u-r.com uh there's a, an email there that is dedicated to to that kind of communication and uh, and the website should uh, you know uh, is very easy to navigate and they will be able to to connect with my um, old blog with my new blog this arab life and uh, and by all means if they want to reach out just uh, write me an email uh, the email is there and i'm very happy to respond and uh, and engage absolutely and thank you very much for having me khalid i really enjoyed it thank you beautiful guys you heard it here if you want to get in touch with ml just go to mlgandur.com uh, her book's coming out soon make sure if you're if this is you know an area they're interested in make sure you go out and get it uh, ml again thank you so much for coming on the show to everyone listening guys thank you so much i uh, really appreciate it please make please make sure to like share and follow and subscribe to the podcast at hope.it.helps on instagram and as always guys hope it helps peace